Hi, everybody. Welcome back to PWG's Well Chat with Dr. Nikki and Dr. Eileen. It's a treat for you. We are on the road. We are in New Orleans for the AAP National Conference. We're busy learning lots of interesting new things. But we wanted to finish up our section on nutrition, right? Right. The third part. Yes. So let's just jump right in. There are lots of questions that I get, and I know, Eileen, you probably get them too, about organic versus non-organic and what that means. How do you break that down? Well, we should start with talking about what organic is, right? That's right. What does that mean? Yep. Uh, And in terms of food, it means that the food has been grown with no hormones, synthetic chemicals, antibiotics. There's no genetic engineering done and no irradiation of the food. But you still have to remember, even if that's the case, that chemicals can be blown over or leached into the soil. So, for example, organic produce may still have some traces of pesticides or chemicals on them. So why is that important? Because we sort of live in ground zero of... um, well, I shouldn't say ground zero, but there's a lot of awareness about organic and there's this idea that organic is better or it's somehow more nutritious or it may be more expensive, but I have to buy everything organic or I'm not giving my family good food to eat. And I'm not sure that's true. Um, I like how you define organic. I usually will tell families that there's a um, prioritization of stuff. Mm-hmm. And for me, there's certain key produce items that really should be organic if you can at all afford them. Right. When you're trying to budget. Exactly. So if you're one of those lucky people where this doesn't apply to you, that's great. You can skip ahead. But for the rest of us. You can buy all organic. buy all organic. But for the rest (laughs) of us, we sort of have to figure out where we're going to, where we're going to get the most bang for our grocery buck. And I know that you've talked about the environmental working group with your patients. Right. You you turned me on to that. Right, right. It's one of my favorite places to look online. It's a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to protecting our health and the environment. And they come up with some really great suggestions of, of things that you can use that decrease your exposure to chemicals and pesticides. My favorite one is the Dirty Dozen Shopper's Guide to Pesticides and Produce. And they have come out with the 2019 top three. And what do you think they are? Okay, I'm going to guess. Because I think the most important produce is the one that's the thin skin that you don't peel, Mm -hmm. that you tend to eat whole. So I'm going to go with tomatoes, berries, bell peppers, those kinds of things. Right. Well, I think you're right on about the way you think about it. And berries in general for me are big um, places to buy produce that's organic but the top three are strawberries spinach and kale i didn't know that so it's interesting because you wouldn't you would my mind would go to fruit first but spinach and kale which at least where we're from a lot of people are eating because they're very nutritious yeah so especially if you're eating these almost every day which some of us do then you want to buy organic because your pesticide load if you're eating something on an almost or daily basis is going to be higher. So so you you had started this with why would that be important? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. Um, one is that you may have uh, exposure, um, especially with animal produce, to um, more drug-resistant bacteria 
Are you talking about the... So organic animal products. Okay. For instance, if you buy your chicken and they haven't been given antibiotics, okay. they may have less exposure to drug-resistant bacteria that, that could cause a problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Right? Um, uh, there have been, at least this year, a couple of studies that are compelling about pesticide exposure. One um, showed that women that were exposed to high levels of pesticides had an increased risk of having children with uh, autistic spectrum. And then there was another study done in another country that showed that there was high blood pressure measured in children after they had had some high levels of pesticide exposure uh, from the from flowers being sprayed. So you have to be careful about yeah. making, you know, a this must cause this right. um, direct correlation. But it suggests that there may be some significant risks for us. But, right, what do you do with a family that just can't afford to buy all organic fruit yeah, or strawberries, it, right? I don't expensive. even do that. I have to be thoughtful right. about what I buy because often it's more expensive. Well, this is where I like that whole slow food and real food movement. I know a lot of people have heard of Michael Pollan. Um, he's definitely one of the early pioneers. An Dr. Andrew Weil is another one of those early pioneers where part of it is you eat what's in season, right? We've lost the idea of seasonality because we think that in January you can get strawberries. Because you can, but they may not be grown correct, domestically. Even. Correct. And so um, I like your idea about being thoughtful about how you're approaching eating. If I'm hearing you correctly, the Environmental Working Group says the Dirty Dozen, that's a good guideline for if you can afford organic in these 12 fruits and vegetables, do it. I also agree with you. I think animal products, milk, butter, uh, dairy, if you're, if you're someone who eats meat, then the, how the meat's raised, whether they use antibiotics, whether it's grass-fed, farming methods, all of those things are important in the quality of the meat that you're eating and the animal welfare. And then if you look at the studies that medically having pesticides in your body is not a good thing. There are some links to developmental disorders like autism. I know DDT was recently banned in California because of a definitive link with certain cancers. So it doesn't seem that far-fetched to link pesticide exposure to bad things. So when you can, look for organic in those areas. Now, if you really can't afford organic in these areas, I'd rather have you eat the fruits and vegetables than right. not eat them, quite frankly. Um, frozen organic stuff can be cheaper than fresh organic stuff. I've done that myself for I my love smoothies. It, right, I like it for smoothies yep. as well. And we have to remember that organics are not necessarily more flavorful, nor are they more nutritious right. than non-organics so and still... anything you peel like avocados melons bananas. bananas i don't buy organic bananas can i say that and not get judged for it i, I do if they're the same price <laughs> and i don't buy organic avocados i buy the regular avocados me so too i'm i'm trying to to put my money where my mouth is and it's worked okay for me so far uh i don't personally buy organic flowers or organic uh, bakery products. I I haven't read that much literature that convinces me that that that's really going to decrease my overall pesticide load by that much. But that's me. I know some people do. I haven't really found a big 
taste difference either. What about you? I think it still goes down to what you eat a lot. Yeah. So not only what somebody is showing are the highest levels of pesticides in foods, but what do you eat a lot of? So what does on that mean? On a regular that basis. If you eat for bread instance, every day, one then of, it should be organic? No, one of my family members eats almost the same breakfast every day. Berries, granola, yogurt. I mean, on repeat. Uh-huh. And at one point I said, you eat berries every day. So we're going to buy organic berries. Of course, this correlates with eat what EWG is saying is high in pesticides, but I would make sure I had organic yogurt. And I might even do the granola as organic as well because okay. it's a daily thing. But okay. I haven't switched to sugar and flour and those things yeah. as organic in general. But if I see that the price is about the same when I'm shopping for those things, I will sometimes buy organic. That's fair. Um so I, I feel like we covered the organic piece of it. The other question that I sometimes get that's tangentially related to this idea of organic and eating things that are good for you, people bring up soy. I think someone somewhere on the internet said soy was bad, and I haven't found any medical corroboration that that's true. Have you found anything? I haven't found anything that's compelling, and I haven't seen anything in our... Uh, pediatric literature that recommends that we tell people not to eat soy. Right. Um, And I think people are concerned about something called phytoestrogens uh, that can be in higher levels in soy. And people are worried that that turns into estrogens when you eat them. And maybe that has feminizing effects on puberty in boys. This is what I hear from my parents. And in reality, I don't see that. Uh, And in reality, there are many cultures, including some of my ancestors from China who eat a lot of soy (laughs) products. And I don't think I've seen premature puberty or feminization um, in in that population or, or the one that we treat. That's fair. I got to say, both anecdotally and from a literature review, I would agree with you. I haven't come up with anything in the medical literature, either domestically or internationally, that says that soy has a credible threat in this area. Um, When I say medical literature, I'm talking about literature that's published in peer-recognized journals I recognize that some people consume their information from other sources. It's hard for me to really get a sense of the quality of those studies because they may have a different vetting process. They may only have five participants. Right, the sample number is really important in this case. Exactly. So um, there's nothing in the, the, the mainstream medical literature that we've reviewed that says it's bad. So, you know, eat your tofu, put your soy sauce on, and put your eat your edamame. Right. It's still a great source of uh, plant-based protein. Yeah. It's really good. So I'm whether in. you're vegetarian or not, and, um, you know, I think it's, it's a great, it could be a great part of a diet. I agree. So the other um, thing I get questions about Dr. Nikki is how much water should yes, I drink? Yes. And I, you hear a lot, especially for adults, you should have at least eight glasses a day, but how do you advise your your patients I found a really simple tool because I like simple tools so the Children's Hospital of Orange County which is affiliated with UC Irvine Medical School go anteaters have the perfect simple guideline 
Children should drink the number of eight ounce cups of water equal to their age with the maximum of 64 ounces or eight cups of water for children and adults eight years of age and up. So what does that mean? If you have a one-year-old, they should have about one eight ounce glass of water a day. A two-year-old needs two of those and so on, which I love. I think that's really- It's very straightforward. Easy to remember. And you had brought up and highlighted the point to me that the AAP just came out with revised guidelines about the fluids that kids should be drinking. Right. That's right. We brought up, I'm not sure if we brought it up in another part of our nutritional uh, discussions, but again, water comes up as a really important hydrator and the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends for children that they hydrate using fluids, primarily water and milk. Yep. So there is not any or only a very small role for any sweetened beverages right. at this point for children that are two years old and up, I believe. And at the conference this year, I think they've even come out and said that even if you juice your own fruits and vegetables, even if you make that at home, that nutritionally it's not as good as a smoothie. So we're really moving away from this idea that juices of any shape are necessarily good they're out there I'm not going to be I'm not going to be one of those people that says never have them but recognize them for what they are which is a delicious treat right because it's the it's a sweetened beverage right even if it's all juice and no added sugar which kind of touches upon this idea that I I know comes up in the room a lot the conversation about food usually comes up when there's a problem and and I can sense we're going to talk about it because I'll get the parent that pulls me aside or will make very significant eye contact with me in the room and say can you please tell so and so how important it is to do such and such and that usually means I don't know eat more vegetables don't eat junk things that we all know to be true and it's all the things the parent has been saying and the child is not acting on any of those recommendations and so I, they want us they want us to sort of keep them motivated and see if we have more pull. And while I love the idea of that, I, I just want to take a moment to just recognize that food is is a complicated topic to discuss with people. Um, it's and I know a lot of parents are appropriately mindful of how they bring up food in front of their kids because you you don't want to create a bad relationship with food. You you don't you want to have a healthy relationship with food, right? And culturally, there's a big there's a big component of culture. I, my parents are from India. I, food is love. Like food is quite literally a manifestation of how well you're doing in the world. And I remember visiting relatives, and the worst thing you could do was not eat what was put in front of you. And if you didn't get seconds, that meant you were insulting the cook. And if you didn't eat everything on your plate, there was a problem. I don't know what it was like for you, but it was, food was, it was really complicated. It was not just about nourishing your body, but it really was complicated. Well, and I often see in some of our patients that they come when they're uh, preschoolers, yes, particularly, or toddlers, if they're not really chubby, some of the grandparents yes. think something is wrong. Yes. Or if I have a slim child who is still healthy, 
the grandparents think something is wrong because they're not chubby. And it, I don't think even with lots of discussion about this and showing them growth charts that they're convinced that right. it's healthy. I agree. That's such a good point you bring up. It, it's almost like in a lot of different cultures, having a rotund and robust and chubby child is a healthy child and no amount of talking about it from a Western perspective is going to change people's minds. But you're right. That's another piece of it. Um, so how, how do you, how do you navigate that in the room? Cause I know I will start to ask a lot of questions or try to try to get the kids involved. If they're old enough to get involved in conversations, why do you think this is important? Why are we talking about that? What, what makes a difference? Um, It depends on the age, right? It depends on the age. So if they're very little, again, if they're very little, then they're not going to make decisions. They're just going to make decisions based on what the parents put on their plate. Am I going to eat that or not? They're not going to go to the cupboard and pig out on cookies, right? They're they're not. But do you sometimes, I sometimes get the sense that parents will, will use food without intentionally, not necessarily intentionally meaning to do that. But if you do X, I'll get you an ice cream or you can have the lollipop or you can have if you eat two bites of vegetables then you can have your cookie right or your dessert or your dessert I try not to use food always as a reward I think sometimes it is okay but Mm -hmm. you want to mix it up it Mm -hmm. might be we get to have a playground date just uh, mommy and me date oh I like that right or we get it's it could be an activity or we get to um, get extra stickers but it I think food is okay to use sometimes as a reward, but not always. Really what we want to try to do is have the kids see that they're supposed to make good choices, that they enjoy eating eventually as a social thing, right. not just as a fueling up your body thing. And and the goal is to eat lots of different things eventually and to develop some self-moderation. Yeah. And I don't expect kids to self-moderate on Halloween, right? There are days when you just go crazy and we hope the day after Halloween, we don't have a whole bunch of kids that have stomach aches and come in because we know it's because they ate too much candy. Yeah, you're spot on. I I also sometimes will see the families where there's, as soon as the kids are old enough to realize that the rules that are going on in my house may not be the rules that are going on everywhere, that sometimes that can create some struggles. You know, for example, if you are in a household where there's no processed sugar, there's no added food coloring, you're doing all organic, you're doing fruits and vegetables up until, I don't know, you go to daycare or preschool or kindergarten, right, three three or four. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden you're going to places and -and so-and-so's got Oreos in the cupboard or something that- Or cupcakes for for birthday. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I I mean, I have joked to parents, like, you don't want to have that kid that's in the corner- at a birthday party, just shoveling cake in their mouth because they don't get it any other time. So, you know, I have to respect the parents who are really trying to eat by, by rules that are healthy for them. Right. So it's not a judgment for, no, I try not to be judgy about anything, you know, that's not going to cause harm, but I think it's important to allow your child to have small amounts of things. If that's within 
what you can live with so that they're not shoveling cake in their mouth right. <laughs> at <Right>. the birthday <laughs> party. So they can say, oh, this cupcake's pretty good. You know, I like chocolate more than vanilla, so I'm going to leave. I'm not going to eat it all, or that's too much frosting, or, or I'm going to have the cupcake, and, and that's enough. I like what you just said about the modeling the kind of behavior where, oh, I didn't like the taste of this. I didn't like all of the frosting. I'm, I'm not going to eat it all. I think that's such a simple phrase, but it's really powerful to model that I don't necessarily like all of this. I don't have to eat all of that. Well, that goes to growing up. If you have a parent who said you have to eat everything on your plate. Right. Right. There's starving children somewhere. And right. that was that I had some of that, although no, not much, but it would make you feel bad. As a little kid, I'd be like, well, just mail it to them. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so in that vein, I'll tell parents just if use a portion size, a serving size, that's half of what you think they should be having. So whatever serving size you want to give them, cut it in half so that you're making them ask you for more rather than making them overwhelmed that they have too much um, and that sometimes you can play a game like almost doing a taste test. So what do you think about whatever it is? How, how would you describe the taste? How would you really trying to spend more time experiencing the food in order to do that? You want to get rid of distractions like screens and, and ideally you want at least one meal in a day where everyone can sit for, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes and actually talk Right. What do you, what do you think? Such an important thing. Yeah. Talking and taking time to eat. So not only is it just about what you eat, but the behaviors around eating, yeah. which I think we're recognizing are more and more important in terms of Super how you important. manage food. Like I remember growing up, dinner was a tough one to have everyone sit down at dinner. I mean, dad was coming home at different times. We were all hungry at different times. But I remember breakfast, weekend breakfasts were the big thing because we could at least find one time on the weekend where we could all sit and have breakfast. And those were, I still remember those. Like that was a really important time. I, what was your meal? Right. We were fortunate. My, I had a working mom who still managed to get a, a home-cooked meal on the table every night. So That's we amazing. ate dinner together every night. And I was super spoiled. My dad made my lunch for me through high school. So I was super spoiled, but food was really important in our household. We all love to cook. We all love to eat well. Um, we didn't want to waste stuff, but we didn't want to take more than what we needed. So on the topic of not wasting food, the other thing a lot of people are now feeling is you want to eat what you need, but you don't want to waste food either. Right. Take what you need, make what you need, but don't waste it. I like that. This generation of children and parents that are growing up are much more environmentally conscious. I like to, I I like to think. And so we have a responsibility to eat well, but also to treat our environment well. I like that. I, I also think that I'll tell parents, you, you may try something five times, 10 times, 15 times, and it's not until the 20th time that you like it. Kale is that thing for me. Yeah. <laughs> goat cheese. Yeah. I've tried and tried and tried. Really Fresh goat cheese is really great, but otherwise I just oh. I just can't do it. But try to be open-minded, yep. even as an adult. Yep. We, and we've touched on this too, because you're modeling behavior. Your kids are going to look at you and, oh, she's eating the kale, so it must be okay. Yep. Internally, I, I you can make so. a face, but the outward one, you, you want to be a good actor. Yeah. Right? I'm eating this. Uh, 
now we've, we really haven't, we've talked about food in the context of you can eat anything or try anything and there aren't any health consequences. As we know, there are a lot of families and kids that do have food allergies. And, and in that situation, I think you're forced to be much more aware of food and its impact and be a, a lot more vigilant about what you're eating. And I think it's outside the scope of this particular episode. We have other ones planned, but for, for this particular episode, the premise is that it, that you don't have a food allergy. Um, I do get a lot of questions about gluten, giving up gluten and giving up dairy products or sugar, usually in the context of behavior or colds, like, you know, someone's sick, can they still have dairy? Mm-hmm. What do you say to that? No, I get the same things. I think it's important to make sure if you are really concerned about an allergy, you talk to your pediatrician. Yeah. Uh, you may even need to see an allergist for formal testing because people can have sensitivities to something. Their body could react in a way that's different than their siblings or other members of the family, but they don't actually have an allergy to something. So before you make the decision to put yourself or your family member on an elimination diet, which could have impacts on your nutrition overall, it's important to talk to a physician about that. A physician or a dietitian or a registered nutritionist. I, I... I'm the first one to admit I I have had to learn a lot about nutrition post-medical school, post-residency, because I don't think we really got that much training in it. And a lot of my parents, and quite frankly, some of the kids know a lot more than I do about certain um, nutritional patterns and eating styles. So the idea is to come together and talk about it and work through what you're feeling and what makes sense in terms of what to try. I think a nutritionist is really great when you do have an allergy that has been proven using standard medical methods and they can help you figure out how to fill the holes that some of the things that are eliminated from your diet, um, you know, can be substituted with. They're also really great for the very slim athlete that needs extra calories. How do you get really calorically dense foods in? Because often these slim kids they're not as hungry, so they don't want to eat as much volume. So how do you get really dense calories into them? I, you know, I like to do things like uh, nut nuts because mm-hmm. they're high in fat, but they're um, good for protein. They fill you up. Um, again, they're calorically dense. And I also think for people that are trying to change the way they eat, it might be a registered dietitian may help them with a meal plan that they can stick to. Yeah, I agree. So it may be somebody who's really tra- trying to change, get off junk food and processed food, but they're having a hard that, time. That's a great idea. So that's that's another interesting way a nutritionist might be able to help you because I think meal plans that you can stick to that are realistic may help with people that actually have problems with obesity, for example. Plus it's nice because what works for you, like you said, what works for you may not work for somebody else. So trying to have a cookie cutter approach to nutrition may not work. So I love that. So if you have someone or you don't know someone, you want some resources, checking in with your pediatrician would be a good idea. The last broad topic I wanted to bring up was probiotics and prebiotics because I get that question all the time. And I, I can tell you how I define right. what probiotics. Right. What, what do you say? Because these are, these are hot topics. Yeah. Probiotics are hot. They're super hot. Hot topic. 
Well, the gut microbiome, which is a fancy way of saying all the bacteria that are living in your gut, we now know are super important. And there is so much research coming out, it's just flying out right now. But there's basically what we call quote unquote good bacteria, which help you process energy. There's a lot of good data that says the good bacteria help your body function better. Fun fact, did you know there's at least a thousand different species of bacteria in our microbiome? There are more than 3 million bacterial genes and a third of your gut flora is shared by a lot of different people. Two thirds is specific to us. And you start forming your gut flora as soon as you're born. By the time you're three, it's stable and pretty much similar to your adult flora. I think that's pretty cool. It is cool. But so there's good bacteria, bad bacteria. Um, Probiotics quite literally are good bacteria that you can ingest in different forms. Yogurt, drinkable yogurt is another form that nature intended, but they also have gummies and dried capsules and things like that. So that's how I define it. How do you define prebiotics? Those are the foods you can eat that provide food for the bacteria in your gut. Okay. All bacteria are good bacteria? The good, the good, well, we're talking about thing, prebiotics that allow your probiotic gut intestinal flora to thrive. So the good bacteria to do well. Yeah. So, okay. So that makes sense to me. And not surprisingly, the prebiotics are usually high fiber, plant-based. Carbohydrates. Yeah, exactly. They're carbohydrates. That, that pass through your gut and become food for the good bacteria. That is my understanding. Okay. So what are some specific options? Bananas, apples, oats, garlic, leeks, cocoa, flaxseed, wheat bran are just the tip of the iceberg, I think. Uh, And actually, if you look at, um, we didn't talk about uh, breastfeeding at all, but breastfeeding, uh, babies that are breastfed have good uh, probiotic colonization from that process. And it's, uh, I think, harder to get that if you are bottle-fed. But not to worry, you still get some. And I noticed that some of the formulas have probiotics and some of them have prebiotics. Yeah, I've noticed that too. It's kind of nice that people are trying to recognize that that's important. I know that there's a lot of good data coming out of Europe and other parts of the world where they're fairly convinced that the probiotics are important. Uh, really quick, there's some interesting studies looking at the changes in people's gut microbiome for immigrants coming to the States. And they have they may have thriving, healthy gut microbiomes before they get here. And then after they've eaten a U.S. diet, the gut microbiome isn't that good, which I found really interesting. It'd be interesting to see if the processed food is creeping yep, up and they're right? not getting as much whole food. Yep. Probiotic, a prebiotic food. That would make sense to me. I think you're absolutely right. The other argument, which I don't know how I feel about this, is that we're too clean, that other countries, there's a little bit more of a bacterial load that you're surrounded by. So you just naturally ingest more dirt. Exactly. Um, I don't know about that one. I'm going to have to sit with that one, but it's interesting. So that's a lot of stuff to take in about food and nutrition, but it is such an important part of the trifecta of wellness, wouldn't you say? Right. And this this episode was really just bringing up some of the topics that people ask us about. Yep. So but if, we, you, if you had to encapsulate everything for people, 
I think I would start with food. It's not just about the food. It's about the food, but it's not about the food. It's There's a big psychosocial element. There's modeling good behavior and trying not to make it a power struggle, right? Never make it a power right. struggle. Well, how else? Some of the other themes that we touched upon, quality is important, the whole organic versus non-organic. We talked about, like, as you mentioned, the social aspects, trying to eat together. Yes. Uh, I think is important as a family on a regular basis, if not a every dinner or breakfast kind of situation. I think rec- re- uh, recognizing teenagers are trying out different options in their life. Yeah, I like how you And vegetarian yeah, and agree. vegan options can be okay. And as long as it doesn't mean that parents are you know, cooking three different meals that the teenager has some responsibility also to help themselves make good choices that I, I do think vegetarian vegan options are okay. I um, liked how you fr- yeah. framed that conversation. And I also like the, the in-depth um, knowledge about the different eating styles and the nutritional work that you have to do to make sure you're getting adequate vitamins, uh, minerals, all that stuff. So that that was a lot of stuff. So if you missed it, it's episodes, what is, I think it's four, five, and six about nutrition. Right. Um, so we talked about sleep in a couple of episodes, nutrition in three episodes, and what's coming up then is the other piece of the trifecta of wellness, which is exercise. So we'll get to that next. But in the meantime, go get some good flaxseed or kale or goat cheese, <laughs> make a salad. Have a good night. <laughs> good night. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye.